Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silvercore stands for. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of the Silvercore Club and community, visit our website at silvercore.ca. What a beautiful studio. Thank you. Yeah, it was a, uh, it's been a bit of work and it's still a work in progress, but uh, it's a little different from the last time you were here, hey? Yeah. It was equally as nice, but it's just, you can tell yes. There is uh, some serious step up that occurred here. Little by little, <laughs> little, it's a, it's a learning process. Yeah. So if you don't recognize the voice yet, I'm sitting down with Seb Lavoie once again. He's been on the Silvercore podcast a couple of times now, and we were both really excited talking about being on this podcast again. We're both pushing ourselves in similar ways and some ways that are maybe a little bit different. And we thought there's going to be some value in us at least talking about this between the two of us. And if at the end of this episode, we feel that the value is there for you, that'll be why you're listening to it. Seb, welcome back to the Silvercore podcast. <laughs> I like that. If you, if you like what you hear, you get to hear it. Otherwise it just never happened. That's a beauty about being able to edit and uh, take care of these things. Now, before we get rolling too far, I do have to thank you for the geography and geopolitical lessons that you provided me. I'm looking, I'm like, man, you know, it's been winter for a while. It's pretty cold. I want to go someplace warm. Haiti's got some cheap prices. Who do I know who's been to Haiti? <laughs> Seb, what's Haiti like? Yeah. <laughs> it's an incredible uh, tourist destination at the moment. Uh, situation in Haiti is, I would say, well, catastrophic from a humanitarian standpoint. That That is a fact and that is a UN essentially statement, not a Sablavois statement. Mm -hmm. um, the, I mean, if I was to put it in a nutshell, we have, what we have is a poor prince. The capital of Haiti is controlled almost entirely by gangs. We're looking at 60 to, depending where you look, there's statements of 60 to 75% in gang controls. We are talking about armed gangs and we are talking about heavily armed gangs with leaders from, you know, former military leaders that are now mm -hmm. leading those gangs that have, you know, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and they're imposing their wills on the populations. The, you know, rape levels, the... The abduction levels has been over 1,500 abductions in, in a year span of locals for ransom and, and, and a ton of ransom money put back into the gangs, which in terms, you know, evidently escalates the violence. There is a pandemic, a cholera, mm. as, as if they didn't have enough going on. They have a, a major pandemic, which is also affecting people at an unprecedented rate they've had, and I can't remember what the numbers are, but astronomical amount of deaths. I think it's 10,000, something like that over the last two years. So there I am with my finger hovering <laughs> over the clicking <laughs> enter button thinking, oh man, the price looks so good and man, it, it looks beautiful from the brochures. 
Thank you. Thank you for that quick heads up because clearly um, I haven't been tracking the news on that one and there is clearly a reason why it mm -hmm. was so affordable. Um, but we've, uh, we've planned something different. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we we're talking the other day about, well, a number of things. And one of the things was uh, talking about our struggles or posting our struggles because you've got a real Superman larger than life persona. You're fit. You've got quite the background. You're um, very outspoken, very intelligent public speaker. And people will often take a look at somebody such as yourself as having all of the answers. And I did a, uh, I was talking with Mark Kenyon and he's got a popular podcast called Wired to Hunt and he's on Netflix, on Meat Eater. And he says, you know, I, I, I know the formula. I know the formula to growing on social media and it's, you can put out this sort of superhuman, uh, I'm always out there doing the hardcore stuff, never fail kind of persona. He says, but it just wasn't me. And I found that when I started posting some of my failures without complaining about them, some of my struggles and solutions that I was looking towards, it massively increased my relatability, my exposure. Um, and that was, I, I thought that was kind of a neat thing because quite often it, people are very afraid to talk about their failures. And on the other side, some people just jump right into it and it just becomes them and it's a constant gripe fest and it's going to be a difficult thing to kind of balance. But what were your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting from a sort of a scholarly standpoint, you know, I would love to look into was the fact that he posted about his struggles directly correlated or, or a direct cause of his social media growing or simply being in line with who he is and being himself, mm -hmm. you know, cause those, those two things are, are evidently we're trying to put the best foot forward as we are posting on social media. And that's something that's natural. And we're trying to be positive also. So you're not trying to, you know, go down those, those negative drains necessarily. But I would be, I would be curious to see if just him making the decisions of being real and being him could have had that impact. Or if it's truly the fact that, or maybe it's a combination of both. And it's likely that that's the case, mm. right? Like right. it's a combination of him actually coming out into himself and, and being the person that he is, the incredible person that he is. And, and also it brought some relate, some relatability mm -hmm. and humans, there's some really interesting things that happen when we start st seeing people that we look up to, especially struggle with certain things and address those things. It, it gives us not only a roadmap to how it can be addressed in our own lives, but it also shows us that they're human and they're mm -hmm. experiencing the same struggles that we have, that we, that we, that we have. And so it's no longer about being a victim. It's about, okay, there, there are other people out there that experience the things that I'm going through and what are they actually doing for, you know, remedying those situations. And if those people are people that you just so happen to be looking up to, and I, I, I don't really like the look up kind of thing because I mean, evidently somebody can, can be looked up to in a certain area and necessarily not in another one, Sure, you know, based on how they're acting or based mm -hmm. on, but we were talking about a snippet Right, of, exactly. Of, of the image, right? Who do you look up to? Lots of people. Yeah? Oh, yeah. I, I take the good out of everyone. I look up to you a lot. 
like I look up to you, I look up to Sean Taylor, I look up to to everybody who who does who goes out there and does something positive and does it on account of the collective, if that's even you know something that we can and it is certainly something that we can look that, at the collective. Yeah, yes, I absolutely. Mean, yeah, so anybody anybody who steps up, anybody who's pushing themselves outside their comfort zone, anybody who's seeking excellence, personal excellence. And anybody who's not only seeking personal excellence, but also brings people along the way mm. with them. We know a lot. We know a lot of high achievers. Yes. How many people did they help achieve success? That is a critical piece for me. It's not what you know, it's who you know, has often been said in the past. And if it's the who you know, who is it that you're surrounding yourself with? And I find those, and we've talked about this before in the podcast, you know, it's come up, people say, well, I've got to work on me first. And they give the airplane analogy. You got to get the mask on yourself before you can help others. And I find people get so tunnel visioned in this idea that they have to be perfect before they can help others, that they overlook the reality that once you make yourself of service to others and you're able to recognize how you can assist the right people out there, do better, you will do better. Mm -hmm. And you'll feel better and you'll get so much more back out of that than you ever would by constantly working on yourself just in your own little echo chamber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can make a metaphorical connection with a variety of different things, whether it be firearms training or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or martial arts or whatever the case may be. I've never, I've never once wanted to be an instructor in teaching others, mm -hmm. not because I didn't care to teach others, but because I was wanting this, the one thing that I wanted it to be. A, a hobby without turning into a job because right. I, I have a tendency to do that. Yes. So I was, I was, and I sure, sure I did, right? I, I did anyways yeah. in the end, um, having a martial arts studios. But at the end of the day, <laughs> as a, say a purple belt, I, I had a, a bunch of years behind me on the mats and I had never taught anything and I had no interest of doing so. I fell into it by accident when somebody that was leading a class in a law enforcement context departed and they asked me if I could run a class for them and they loved that class. So mm. I continued doing it. But what I quickly found out is that I was unable before I started teaching, I was unable to break down specifically what made the mechanisms that I employed to make myself successful in certain situations. When I started articulating everything that I was doing along the way, it started reinforcing those, those very things that I was doing subconsciously and it allowed me to actually regain control and be able to replicate those movements, mm -hmm. right? So I was able to not only affect the movement in a certain set of circumstances, but I was able to create the circumstances that led to having the ability to conduct that movement. There are that old saying, those who can do, those who can't teach. Mm -hmm. And I've heard a variation on that, which is those who can do, those who understand teach. Mm -hmm. And I know it, one, one fellow and would rib me because running silver core and as, as a school and he says, oh, you know, those who can do, those who can't teach. And he took over a very successful business and ran it into the ground. And I said, no, no, I thought it was those who can do, those who, uh, understand, teach, those who can't run successful businesses into the ground. <laughs> and he never said it again after that, but it was, uh, that teaching part is something that needs to be balanced as well, because I don't think somebody can be the, the always teacher without also being the always student. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, being an, being an astute learner is 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 paramount in in being in optimizing the way you teach mm-hmm. to begin with, but also optimizing the way you conduct yourself. Because if you end up believing your own hype, and 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 if people are especially if if the hype is is real and has some basis of foundation, you know, mm-hmm. which is real. And you may you, you you the predisposition to actually start believing it becomes incre- increased you know substantially and mm-hmm. so it, it not only helps you develop as in whatever field of endeavor you're in and continue to get better pursue that that constant pursuit of excellence but a constant learning continuous learning so to speak mm-hmm. but also the other piece which is keep your feet right on the ground where they should be right because otherwise you start to lose perspective. And I, I remember I did a, uh, a, a police pistol instructor course with Vancouver police at the tactical training center a number of years ago. And the uh, lead instructor on that was, um, staff sergeant, Mark Horsley. Mark Horsley has been on the podcast in the past and he's was successful in shooting the FBI possible when he was down at Quantico, not because, and they named it the FBI possible because it's not necessarily impossible. <laughs> There is a possibility someone can shoot that one clean and he did, and he got the award for it. But I remember there is, uh, two things that really kind of stuck out to me from an instructor standpoint. Number one was so often you go on courses and they're basically just student courses and they're geared kind of towards instructors. And at the end of it, the instructor has to prove that they're at X level and then they, they'll pass or not. He says, no, I want to choose people who've already proven that they can they can operate at a certain ability and we're going to push you so hard through this one. It'll be a learning process for you. And I remember there's one drill, he's, we're getting back from the target a little bit and, um, everyone's feeling pretty hot and says, okay, go into your support hand. Okay. Pistol and support hand, put around to the target and everyone, you know, tries best, makes sure dead center. He's like, okay, put the next hole in that hole. Right. And. There's a struggle because that's difficult. One-handed support hand, putting it in the same hole. I was successful on that one. I was the only one who was successful, probably by fluke. But, um, the, uh, reason for that drill wasn't to show off or see how well someone could do. It's like people who are brand new to this skill are going to be nervous. They're going to have difficulties. They're not going to be that good at it. And it's to re-familiarize somebody who's been out of that learning stage for so long, what it's kind of like to fail and struggle at a new skill. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a very, very common concept in, in, in military special operation, for example, or even in police special operation. I mean, there's only one way to continue to grow and that's to be uncomfortable. I mean, Comfort mm-hmm. is where growth goes to die. And we know that. And it sounds like a back of a t-shirt. And the reason why <laughs> it sounds like a back of a t-shirt is because it should be. Right. That's a fact. Right. And so, and so how do you do that? You know, you really have to start challenging the status quo. And that's, that begins uh, internally. One of the really interesting conversation to be had with, with pushing ourselves outside a comfort zone is that if you get too comfortable controlling the parameters uh, so around how you push yourself outside of comfort, you actually replicating comfortable behavior in uncomfortable circumstances. Right. <laughs> so you have to be really careful because if, if for you being in the, in the, in ice water at four o'clock in the morning for an hour is comfortable, 
then you know how 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 it is theoretically an uncomfortable thing that you are doing now you're just showing off but you are you're comfortable in it so right. in order for you to be uncomfortable again you're going to need to do something that's category or or at least drastically different or longer or whatever the case may be so what is outside your comfort zone that you've been pushing yourself recently I am back to school pal after 20 years <laughs> yeah and uh and higher learnings in a quite the the difficult program and um and I'm loving every second of it and it's been you know learning to write from an academic standpoint and it wasn't so much the writing because I spent 20 years report writing and sure. doing things and and writing business cases and those types of things so the writing itself wasn't the issue what was the issue is learning the processes surrounding academic papers mm. and how to even study again and how to read documents again because I've been reading 600 pages of documents a week right and so that's a book every week on various subjects but now you're just not reading to read and not that I I ever read just to read but sure. I generally read to to grasp a concept out of whatever I'm reading right but in this case now I need to have the ability to retain and refer to later down the line in 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 writing academic papers right in that recall now that's you know the school thing that mm -hmm. would be a challenge you know I did college and university and only made it so far to get the credits I needed to apply in the places that I wanted to apply and school is never a thing for me. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was like for you, but I know. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it depends which, which sort of segment of my life we are talking about, you know, because mm. I mean, I think, I don't think that schooling was ever outside the realm of my abilities. I think the problem was me being my own biggest enemy by, you know, letting my focus float away, by being focused on other things, by caring more about other things. And, and so, but every time I actually applied myself to school, I did well in school. Mm. I mean, it can be argued that anytime I applied myself properly to anything. I mean, you, you, you have to have a degree of success, even mm -hmm. if that degree of success is measurable, measurable only against yourself and to somebody else's opinion may not be what it needs to be, but it has to be in relation to you. And so for me, it was all about not completing the program and having the the, the inherent knowledge and, and, and experience that will come out of that, it was about how do I complete this program and become the person that is capable of having the very tough conversation in the various areas of this field of endeavor and do so with some confidence and some, and some actual backings, you know, right. like you, you know what you were talking about kind of deal. Speaking about talking about, you've been doing some, some pretty prestigious talks here. You've been keynote speaker at some places. Is that just a piece of cake for you? Are you just a naturally born public speaker? What? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about this. Cause they rank that as number one fear for a lot of people is, is public speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a very interesting relationship with public speaking. I mean, I, when I was, when I was younger, much younger. And I think we may have spoke about that before. I mean, I got some severe beatings in group settings. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so I always, there was always a, there was always something there that was mm, lingering, so to speak. And, 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 and it brought a certain amount of stress to, to public speaking, but also as, as a 
as the only visible minority to 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 grow in a certain area, I had to learn to use speech and 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 jokes and 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 have the ability to connect with people in a verbal sense mm -hmm. to be able to survive really i mean it became a survival me mechanism for me as a youth and so there was a two those two piece, pieces are not mutually exclusive right. they kind of they kind of they kind of balanced each other out so to speak and so over the years it became less about natural propensity and what kind of work was i putting in to be ready so mm. then i took the emotions out of that essentially and tr treated it as a as a mathematical equation like how am i going to make myself better no different than what abraham lincoln did for example and not comparing myself to <laughs> abe lincoln but you're talking about somebody that was a very shaky speaker Mm. that had a lot of challenges, including stuttering and different things. And next thing you know, he's delivered some of the, some of the most compelling speeches ever to be delivered, ever right. to be heard, it, you know, in, in the history of humanity, at least recorded humanity. So you're feeling that the proper prior planning, which prevents piss poor performance, right? <laughs> the... the uh, kind of does away with those nerves or are you still feeling that when you're in there? Yeah, I still, I still feel them. For me, it's there. There's a few things that really help me, and and I have a tendency to go blank. I I've done that a few times, where I will hit the floor, and go blank completely. Like I don't remember why I'm there. What am I supposed to talk about? <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> I've done that, and yeah. it's funny, for me anyways. All of a sudden, blank, and all of a sudden, you just hear this. <laughs> sort of like, hold on a second. And it's almost like an out of body experience. And you're like looking at yourself. I got a way that I work with that. How do you work with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, when it happens, the biggest predicator of where the rest of this lecture is going to go is my ability to control my premature panic. Because when it happens, it's the most panicking feeling mm -hmm. you can possibly feel. Like you're standing in front of a room of three, four, five hundred people expecting big things because they heard about you before or some of their friends heard you speak or whatever the case may be. And next thing you know, you go blank. Mm. The panic that it induces is is unmatched. Mm -hmm. Like it's 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 very real. And so for me, it's all about premature panic. How am I going to control the premature panic factor? There is no timeline when you get to the front of the room. There is no timeline at which you are expected to start speaking, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, it, it, that's exactly my coping mechanism. It's if this happens to me, I will stand there and breathe and start talking about something until whatever it is that I'm supposed to talk about percolates. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to maintain my cool, calm, and collected demeanor and just have that conversation, initiate the conversation, initiate a bit of bonding. And once I'm getting a bit of positive return, I will, I will ease off. My stress level will go down and, and, and then I will start flowing again. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Well, I, I remember one in particular, as asked to speak at the, uh, I was up in Whistler, they put me up up there and I was at a, um, uh, private security event. What was it? PIABC, I think. I'm like, well, I don't know why they want me up here, but there's certain things they want me to talk on. Sure. Not a problem. I can do that. And I get up there and I started talking. I was a part of a panel and all of a sudden, bang, completely blank. And I look around and the difference was I had already started talking <laughs> and I went blank and I look at my lap and people start looking at me. And when you're talking about that anxiety, that panic. I found the best possible thing that you can do 
is not fight it, mm-hmm. not fight that panic, not fight that feeling. Cause the more you fight it, the more it builds on itself. And if you could just say, huh, this is interesting. And you just explore it as it happens. And when you say there's no time limit, you know what? They asked me to be here. I was talking about something. They can wait a minute or so while I collect my thoughts. Um, another thing I've done in the past as well is just call it right out on the table. <laughs> and I just said, have you guys ever had an experience where you were on a train and it just crashed and went right <laughs> off? I'm experiencing that right now. And it'll get a laugh out of everyone, out of everybody and said, you know what? The overwhelming feeling I'm having right now is, and I'll talk it through, but I'm going to push through and I'll just tell them that I'm going to push through. We're going to get ourselves back on track. Will you guys give me that, 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 uh, patience and maybe we'll crack a couple jokes in between. And next thing I know, we're back on track. Mm-hmm. I, I remember one job interview I did and it was a group interview. First one I did in a group and it was for a job I really wanted. It was doing promotions for a Corona beer at the time and you get to travel around and you get a Corona Jeep and they give you an expense account. And I was like, I think 20 years old and like, oh, this is what I want. And they had a jug of water on the table. And I figured oh, I'll start pouring people some water and there's, I don't know, 12 people at the table. And then the three bosses that were doing the interview. And the first thing I did was spill that jug over everybody. Oh God. <laughs> like, ah, oh, what do you guys think of me so far? <laughs> and everyone starts laughing. I ended up getting the job <laughs> and they said it was because of that little thing there, but it could have gone completely differently. Of course. Yeah. It's, um, it's really interesting. And one of the things that I, I think I was able to, to, to get out of this as well, to prevent it from reoccurring in the future is to have a framework around my talk. So what I do now, which I didn't do before and didn't prefer to do before is to have a few slides. Mm. And a lot of the speakers have had slides. I didn't have any slides and I was kind of winging it going off the cuffs, which is something that I generally, I'm, I'm pretty good at. Right. And it always pays dividend. In this case, it actually worked out, but it increased my stress to a bit of an unimaginable level. So I was like, (laughs) okay, you know what? Next time we won't be trying this Mm -hmm. because I may not be as lucky. I may not have the ability to to regain my composure so easily. Mm -hmm. And so how can I logistically facilitate success in addition to having the backup plan, which is there's no rush for you to speak. Mm -hmm. Like there isn't. So don't start just, you know, spewing your mouth. Uh, just, just start talking about something and then go down, go down the road and, and it doesn't matter where it takes you, but also if you have the logistical help that you need, you're less likely to have that happen. Now, what's interesting with this is from a stress perspective, a stress management perspective, if you are prepared and you have a slide, a few slides, you are likely to lessen your stress level enough that you don't even experience this. That's right. So preemptively, I could have, you know, I could have prevented that. Right. It, theoretically. I mean, I can't prove it now cause I haven't done it, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, I've heard that, uh, anxiety, panic attacks are some of the worst things that people tend to experience from a psychological perspective and they feel like they're dying. And when I mentioned before that I will just say, huh, this is interesting. I'm not going to try and stop and I'll explore it. Apparently that's a common tool also used for panic attacks. And they say, where do you feel? What does it feel like? Are you, does it feel like you can't breathe? Does it feel like your heart's beating? Does it feel tight in your chest, right? How far does that feeling extend to? Is it extend larger than you? At some point, where does it feel like it's diminishing? 
and you explore those little diminishing areas without trying to stop what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And a byproduct of that is your brain will start figuring itself out. Maybe I'm not in danger. Maybe I actually know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that was an interesting little piece of information that was, uh, uh, relayed to me. I was going to sort of bring into the conversation a urban myth or a rural myth in this case where an, an indigenous person told a, a grandson, you know, the, the, about the wolf you feed. So if, if there's good and bad and there's a bad wolf and a good wolf in each of us, which one prevails in the end? And it's the one you feed. Right. And so I always like this saying in relation to dealing with anxiety or dealing with doubt and uncertainty and those types of things, the things that are hovering above us as, as humans consistently. But one of the, one of the conversation I had a very insightful conversation I had with a pro professional mixed martial artist and a, and a champion with numerous title defense defenses was how do you, and, and so it's somebody had told me that that person had the ability to absolutely look exactly the same on Sunday afternoon on a stroll in the bush versus entering the cage to lock them, you know, lock themselves in there with somebody trained to essentially hurt them for 12 weeks right? and, and, and did so with absolutely no issues. And so I asked him, I said, is it that you don't have any fear at all or don't have any anxiety or, or apprehension or how do you manage to be the person that you are when you go inside the cage, which evidently led to his successful reign as a champion and everything. And he said, he said this. He said, imagine that you enter the cage and there is four wolves in there. All your doubts and insecurities and anxiety and potential outcomes are all in this cage. I make eye contact with them. I acknowledge their presence and I feed them evenly, not one over the other. And so his rationale mm. for saying that was, what is a starving wolf doing? It actually is worse. It, it comes back swinging. And so his thing was you need to acknowledge, and metaphorically applicable evidence. Sure. But I, I thought it was the stuff of genius in, in terms of- I like of, that. Yeah. I've uh, never, I've, you know, I've heard the first one. Mm -hmm. I've never heard the second one. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of value to that as well, because it's like saying, don't think of pink elephants. Mm -hmm. Well, what are you thinking of, right? And the more effort you put into not wanting to feed a certain thing, the more it becomes something to contend with. Sure. Absolutely. And I it's like no, that. it's no different than anything else. I mean, if we want to make a very simple correlation with sleeping, for example, mm. the last thing you are going to do if you are trying to sleep is sleep. That is a fact. Right. Like, so what do you do? You flank your brain. You, you go, you start thinking about other things. You start considering other things. You start, and if there's, if there are things that are really truly impacting your sleep, uh, regime as a result of like the stress that it creates or whatever, evidently mm. you want to stay away from those things and try to go into other areas where you can do some exploration. But if you focus on sleeping, you are absolutely not sleeping. And that is a fact. Sleep is such a huge part of your mental well-being. Of course it is. I mean, uh, you and I have both been talking on the collective mm -hmm. and they talk about all things under the sun, the topics thrown at you and you go into it and mental health was... Uh, an overriding sort of topic that seems to be, uh, discussed on the collective. And if anyone listening to this hasn't heard of that yet, I'm going to put links to it in the, uh, the description and they can check it out. But the formula seems 
pretty straightforward in theory, and that's have some form of purpose. And if you don't know what your purpose is, take a look at what your purpose isn't and see if you can weed it out that way. Um, get some exercise, go for a walk, right? Just get outside, get some exercise, uh, eat well, limit your, um, limit substance abuse. And that could be caffeine, nicotine, drugs, alcohol, uh, technology. People are addicted to their phones and social media and you kind of marry those things together and it will lead to a healthier lifestyle. And that's, um, I don't know where I was going with all of that, but. <laughs> well, it, it, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and what we as humans tend to do is to address wellness is in his one silo, you know, the wellness, right. the wellness silo, not understanding or not comprehending the fact that this is all interconnected. Mm -hmm. There is no dissociation going on here. You know, like if I'm, if I'm the, the, the humans on a, on an emotional standpoint are like pulleys. You know, you pull on one, you pull on one side, something gives, like it, it goes like this. It's mm -hmm. not. And so in order to keep things in balance, we need to be in balance. And how do we, how do we do that? We need to address every single impactful aspect of our lives as we, or as many of them as we possibly can to mm -hmm. maximize our wellness overall. So the wellness become, becomes a symptomology of doing the things correctly in these other areas, not how do I pursue wellness? pursue meaning, pursue excellence, pursue fulfillment, pursue mm -hmm. purpose, pursue and have the right relationship and, 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 and be physically where you need to be, where you, where you, where you ought to be, where you owe yourself to be, mm -hmm. to, you know, eat the food that nourishes you, go out in the outdoors and connect with nature, disconnect from the city. Like all of those things contribute hugely to the wellness paradigm. And we, we'd need a paradigm shift. I mean, there's no question. Yeah. They call it urban anxiety, right? People cooped up in the urban anxiety. Um, and we were talking before the show, people saying, well, it's all easy for you to say, Seb. I mean, it's easy for you to go to the gym. It's easy for you to say these things. I would argue perhaps the inverse on that is true. Maybe it's not quite as easy because you've pushed so hard and it's become something that's now a more difficult routine to, uh, to keep, or you've injured yourself in certain areas, but you're going to go anyways, or you can make those justifications to yourself. I've already been to the gym X amount of times this week. I, I guess I can afford to, you know, not do it today. Um, what would you say to somebody who says, this is easy for you, Seb? Well, first of all, thank you very much for taking everything <laughs> I've ever stood for, you know, and the, and the discipline that I self-imposed mm. to, to be, to be where I went and mm. to have the, a certain level of success in the field of endeavor, I, or my chosen field of endeavor, but also that's not affecting my performance in life, but it's affecting yours mm -hmm. because now you're, you're, you're you're essentially addressing the problem with a victim mentality and yes. people don't like to hear that. But if you are a victim, you are, you cannot regain control over a certain situation. If you are a victim, then external factors control and dictate where this goes. Mm -hmm. When in reality, you have a great deal of control over this. And so if you realize I just exposed the shortcoming, I know I can do better here and you take ownership of it and you regain control everything is within your purview. Mm -hmm. What the, the, nef the nefarious sort of path that we can get into 
is getting addicted to the fact that our inadequacies are creating a certain amount of stress in a neurological sense. Mm -hmm. And if I have a legitimate reason as to why I didn't do certain things, I remove some of the stressors from my neurological system, which makes me temporarily feel better about myself Mm -hmm. and justifies the reason why I'm living the way I am. The problem with that is that involuntary, this voluntary exposure that you could benefit from is not occurring. And so therefore you can rest assured that at some point you will get involuntarily exposed. And when you do, it will not be on your own terms. Mm -hmm. It will be on life's terms and you may not like the terms. I really, I like the thought process that I see becoming more and more prevalent. And it's one of these things, is it becoming more prevalent in society or is it something that I'm seeing more and more in the same way that if you get a new vehicle and all of a sudden you see that new vehicle all over the road, right? But there's a British comedian and I think he's been kind of doing the rounds on social media and YouTube and he was um, in a, I don't, I think it was a school debate system and they asked him to speak and essentially the crux of his point that he put across and he put it across as most Brits do in a very eloquent way was one of the greatest travesties of our current culture and our current kind of woke mentality is this victim mentality and the feeling that people do not have the ability to make change in their own lives. There's always a reason for it. It's because of systemic racism. It's because of, um, gender or, uh, your socioeconomic role in society, whatever it might be, there's a reason. And that removes the impetus from the individual, from feeling that they have any sort of power over making change to themselves. And that pendulum swing seems, I see it happening more and more. And it's something that you preach loud and clear is we all have the power to affect the change that we want to see in our life. I'm. I like that. Yeah, I th- I think part of this paradigm shift has been some key figures that have had some success. And so anybody who operated in a field where there's nobody to look, look at when you fail already understood those concepts mm. and applied those concepts to their own lives. The majority of those people are no longer in combat. Mm-hmm. Right. So now we have, what we have is we have a wealth of knowledge that just exfilled from Afghanistan and Iraq. And I, and I, you know, they're not the only ones, obviously sure. there's, there's people in non-combat role. There's people that non-military that adhered and, 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 uh, had this as a foundational basis. But I think what we are seeing is the Jocko Willink and the, the, uh, David Goggins and all those guys, you know, having right. books that are successful and explaining how they achieve a certain level of success. And, and, and at the forefront of this is often the killing the victim, mm. right? But it's no news to anybody who spent any time in those fields. Mm-hmm. When you have the luxury of being a victim is when this gets dangerous. So you run mental health walks. And when I say you run, it's something that you've championed and you've put forward, but there's others that are helping out and others who are attending as well. And I think the, if I'm not mistaken, there's uh, other mental health walks that are happening that were uh, inspired by what you've been doing, but there are so many different causes in the world and 
that a person can get attached to, typically somebody will champion something that speaks personally to them or that they've been affected by in some way, shape or form. Can you tell me a little bit about the impetus for these mental health walks and what you've seen, the effects of it and where you see it going in the future? Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the best ways for, for myself, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to impose this on everybody else because not everybody has the same coping mechanisms. But for me, a lot of the stress relief and a lot of the sort of, I don't want to say venting, but, um, a lot of the, a lot of the time that, okay. So I spent my entire career dealing with critical incidents, right? My entire career, an entire career. And, and I was, I, I wasn't only dealing with them from an internal perspective as a person involved in those critical incidents, but also as a, as a perspective of, of a leader. So if, even if it wasn't me, the people that say worked for me that were asked to go back over and over and over in critical incidents. And so there was a, there was a, an absolute absolutely critical piece here, which was how am I going to help my people to go, to come to work, go to work, continue going to work, continue addressing the types of calls that we are dealing with, continue doing the things that we do and remain healthy. How are they family units remaining healthy? How's their kids remaining healthy? All those things. So, so, so mental wellness was at the forefront of how we conducted business and we didn't have a choice in that matter. Like we didn't, if we Mm -hmm. didn't, we would have, we would have fallen apart, fallen apart at the seams. And so then there's two ways you can look at this. What can my organization do to make things better? What can this other person or that person or which program can do which for who and what, what am I actually doing? Mm-hmm. Now take take all of the external factors out of the out of the way. Have I optimized what I can be doing on my own? And if I can, and if I have optimized it, now where do I go next to get some additional help from the external world? Mm-hmm. Whereas for me, it's always the same. How can I make things better? It isn't going to be perfect. If you're waiting for the perfect plan, you might as well never start anything mm-hmm. because it doesn't work that way. That's why some people love the saying, you know, jump out of an airplane and build a parachute on the way down <laughs> as long as you have the right components. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But, and that was a very, and for me, it was very, very therapeutic to go out in nature, connect with nature. In fact, it still it still is a strongly impacting of my behaviors. Last week, for example, like I'm not somebody that's overly prone to anxiety, but I do I I am, you know, human and I and I experience anxiety and sometimes more than others, and especially if I'm embarking on a journey that has a lot of unknowns, such as school right now and some of the, the work I had to I have to push out, those types of things. In addition to my, you know, financial situation, which is self-generated, unlike before when a paycheck was coming regularly, those types of things. So the the stress can really, can really impact you. And last week I woke up one of those days I was in Washington, Mount Rainier in a little cabin in the woods with my dogs. And I just loved every, every minute of it. But one morning I woke up and I was very anxious for whatever reason. And I, I, I didn't exactly put my finger on what those reasons were. And it were, and I think it's probably compounding issues that, you know, a lot, I I had a lot of stuff going on. A lot Mm. of things was, um, was in need of me to be addressing, so to speak. Mm. And so anyways, I acknowledged the feeling. I told my girl, my girlfriend, I said, look, 
I, it's weird this morning. I have this anxiety, you know, which I normally don't really have. Right. Let's go out in nature. Let's go connect. Let's go do some training with the dogs and see where see, see where it takes us. And she's like, absolutely. So we went out to waterfalls and I spent a day exploring this amazing waterfall, took my dog there. We did all kinds of work together. We took some shots. We had some great conversations. And I came out of there a completely different human. Like yes. completely different. We are talking a full 100% recharge, ready to take on the world, not just I feel better than I did this morning. Mm -hmm. And so the problem is trying to convince people that the simplest things are often the things that can help you the most is like the most difficult task mm -hmm. because everybody thinks there, there has to be a complex roadmap to, to dealing with issues. Otherwise, if it wasn't the case, why isn't anybody else doing it? Right. Or a magic pill or, or precisely, right. precisely. And so, and so for me, is there, the question came, is there anything I can be doing to help the collective based on my skills, knowledge, and abilities and years of experience in managing mental wellness? And can this something be effectively implemented without you know, logistical support, financial backing and all those things. And is there something that can be done? And the answer is absolutely it can. And we did. And it is working. You know, can I pre pre present an empirical, an empirically database or data analysis? No, I can't show you a, a, a data analysis, but I can tell you with all the people that have participated participated in the walks that have been coming regularly and the impact that it, that it has on their lives. So one of the danger of database analysis is that if you don't have that, you automatically lose credibility, which isn't always the case at all. Totally not. Like you can call it anecdotal if you want, but if, if, if 200, 300, 600 people show up for walks regularly, you know, at, at There's different intervals and they're coming back and, f and feeding you the feedback loop is always the same mm -hmm. and the consistency that you're able to establish within those anecdotal accounts is undeniable. And, and, and that's precisely what happened. It's well, been undeniable. I hear back from people who've been on these walks. A friend of mine lost his father and dealing with his own things, but he says, you know, those walks were hugely, a, a huge step for him in being able to, uh, center himself. And I think a part of that is just the community that you're surrounding yourself with and the ability for you to recognize that it's okay to be feeling these certain things. Not everything's going to be picture perfect, like what, what is shown in some Instagram or social media posts. And there's others out here who are taking steps to being better themselves and they want to see me be better as well. I think that, that community aspect of what you've been building exceeds just being outdoors and commuting with nature. And, and that's a huge part being outdoors and commuting with nature, but that community that you're building, where do you see next steps for that community? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. I, so there's the part of me that's dreaming about certain things that's dreaming in a, in a, in a realistic way to perhaps some of the initiatives that I would love to see implemented by myself mm -hmm. over the course of my lifetime. 
amongst those things is a trauma center for first responders mm. is, you know, uh, equine therapy for, mm. again, for first responders. And in fact, I don't think I'd be, I'd be, you know, denying anybody, but anyways, <laughs> for, for the sake of the conversation, it, you know, it's, it's my target audience would be first responders, mm -hmm. the, the people that are put through certain difficult situations and asked to go back over and over and over and over again, because they're the, the, the rates of occupational stress injury, the rates of, of, of lives that are destroyed by the constant exposure is absolutely catastrophic. And the reaction from the either veterans affair or is, is obviously not in line with what it should be for what we ask these people to do. And so if you're a veteran that spent, went overseas and, and, and did work on account of the collective for something that you were asked to do an extremely difficult, something that most people couldn't fathom, you return to your country only to be suggested made, which has been the case here in Canada is absolutely, absolutely preposterous. And it's absolutely unacceptable as a society. Mm -hmm. It can never happen. Mm -hmm. It's really strange that it is being suggested. It is happening and it's a testament to, I, I guess, the way people think about things currently, or those who are running the programs are thinking about things and it's the wrong way. Um, when we talk about surrounding ourselves with positive people, we were talking off air prior about, uh, I think you said there's a study about millionaires and they hang around with, a, they tend to have a disproportionate number of millionaire friends compared to others. I, so growing up, I went through an, a number of different schools and a number of different high schools. I went to a couple of private schools in there. So I got a chance to see what the posh private school life was like, what the, um, uh, public school system was like, like I was in the worst rated school for British Columbia at one point. And the one thing that I was left with is not necessarily that a private school is going to be offering a better education because some of the public schools offer just fantastic education programs. It's not necessary that they're going to have better access to equipment or resources. They likely might just based on the, uh, the affluent individuals who are drawn to it. But the one thing that it seems to do is it surrounds people with other people who come from backgrounds of success if they're able to afford that sort of lifestyle and it kind of just ingrains into them the expectation of success in themselves. And I found those sort of connections and those sort of, um, expectations that somebody can develop at a, at a younger age, and it doesn't have to be young. They can be old when they start changing the expectations for themselves, makes a world of a difference in the outcome of a person's future. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And compounded with that is the observation that like the direct observation of the success mechanisms being enacted by the people that you're surrounded with. Right. Like you actually get to not only be around successful people, but you get to see them react to situation and interact with life. Mm -hmm. And that teaches you things. Mm -hmm. It teaches you things. It teaches you perspective. It teaches you a, a having a positive outlook. It teaches you about yourself. It teaches you about some of your shortcomings. It just teaches you everything you need to know to be successful. And so the problem with that is you can also surround yourself with the wrong group. And there's two 
there's areas that are problematic in there in that a, you're either at the top of the heap, and if you're at the top of the heap, guess what? You're going nowhere, right. as they as they often say. If you're at the top of the heap and you're surrounded by people that are quote unquote lower than you, and I just mean yep. from a whatever whatever measure of success you self impose, then you're not growing out of that at all. You're not challenging yourself. You're not, and so we're back to the comfort zone as. Right. As as previously as previously discussed, who wants to be king of the losers? Exactly, right? exactly. And some people do. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and and thank God for them, so the other people can go to the top. Right. Probably, the, <laughs> hopefully, the right people. But um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting. It it gives you, and I think one of the traps of being of, of being a human being is to think that whatever it is that we are facing is unique. Mm. There is no way. There is no way, there is no way it's the case. It isn't the case at all. Like I can, I can sit here all day and speak about how horrible my life was and how much adversity I faced and everything. There's sure. always, and it's not about invalidating some of the adversity that I went through those types and acknowledging it is fine, but it's important to have a realistic perspective and to realize that there's people out there that have it. 10 times, a hundred, a thousand, a million times worse than you. And they still are able to do some of the things that you probably should do. Mm -hmm. And so, and again, that sort of speaks to killing the the victim, right? Like I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm taking ownership of this. It's like, listen, yeah, my life was difficult, whatever the case may be. This is the prospect I was dealt with. There's nothing I could have done to change it. And it's in the past. There's nothing I can do to change it. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is regain control of where I'm going and how I'm doing it and who I surround myself with as I'm proceeding towards. And that perspective, that change in perspective that people can get, I think is hugely important coming from a difficult background and everyone's going to have difficulties of one type or another their difficulties should never be measured against somebody else because people are going to have different, uh, mental makeup, uh, personality types, life experiences that will make them think that there's going to be a different outcome or cause different levels of possible anxiety, but that the perspective on your, um, uh, on, on the difficulties that somebody may encounter to look back and say, you know what? Yeah, it was tough, but look at here I am now. And I wouldn't change that for anything because if I changed those things and I didn't have those difficulties thrown at me, would I be where I am now? And if I didn't have those low moments, would I really be able to compare what a high moment feels like? And I think that's, you know, there's a, um, when we did our last podcast together, do you remember what I titled it? Probably not, but I, I, I think it was, uh, the plugging away will win you the day. Yes. Yes. You know why I titled it that? So that was the overriding thing sense that I get from you. And it's based on a poem by Robert William Service, the bard of the Yukon. I don't know if people know this one. Do you want to hear it? Yes, I would love to. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll, we'll see if I can. So. Uh, Robert Service wrote a poem called The Quitter and it goes, if I can remember this, it goes, when you're lost in the wild and you're scared as a child and death looks you bang in the eye, when you're sore as a boil, it's according to Hoyle to cock your revolver and die. 
but the code of a man says, fight all you can and self-disillusion is barred. In hunger and woe, it's so easy to blow. It's a hell sir for breakfast. That's hard. You're sick of the game. Well, that's a shame. You're young and you're brave and you're bright. You've had a raw deal. I know. Don't squeal. Buck up. Do your damnedest and fight. It's a plugging away that'll win you the day. Don't be a piker, old pard. Just draw on your grit. It's so easy to quit. It's a hell served for breakfast. It's hard. I think I repeated that part there, but he goes on to say you're, it's easy to cry that you're beaten and die. It's easy to crawfish and crawl, but to fight and to fight when all hope's out of sight, why that's the best game of them all. And though you come out of each grueling bout all broken and beaten and scarred, just have one more try. It's dead easy to die. It's a keeping on living that's hard. Wow. I can't believe I remember that one actually. That's, I, I, I can't, I can't remember it either. <laughs> In fact, is there a prompter behind me? Yeah, I know. Prompt, some prompter. <laughs> but that was, that was the that's overriding amazing. sense that I got from you. And I thought, you know, that just kind of stuck in the back of my head. And that's why I named the, uh, the podcast episode that. I love that. And, and, and it has a, such a visceral and, and so powerful sort of repercussion or it can have mm -hmm. to have that kind of mentality. I mean, every interaction with adversity from anybody's, anybody's perspective is for the world to see and the world is watching mm. and the people around you. And I'm talking about the people that are actually meaningful, you know, your kids, your spouse, your, your friends, the people that have importance in your life and they're contrib contributors to your life. When they are faced with their own version of adversity, those reactions from the people that they either look up to or love or, or care for or whatever the case may be is massive. What mm -hmm. kind of service is this mm -hmm. on, on account of the collective to actually demonstrate the proper behaviors once, once the, you know, the, you know, what hits the oscillator. And this is, and, and, and it's easy mm -hmm. to speak to theoretical approach to problem solving certain things. It's, it's easy to have, you know, quote, quotes made on the back of a, or put on the back of t-shirts mm -hmm. that, that you can just regurgitate all day on the social. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, when you're face to face with adversity, how, how you react will dictate how other people react to adversity when they face it. So it is a social responsibility. It's not just an individual pursuit. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I love that. So I've got a question. <laughs> you don't have to answer this. Yeah. Why did you move on from the RCMP? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a multi-layered answer. So let's start with why I joined in the first place. I joined to be on the emergency response team. I joined to become a team leader on the emergency response team. That is all. Mm -hmm. That's all I ever joined the force for. Mm -hmm. That's all I ever wanted to be. That's all I ever wanted to do. Once I achieved this and I stayed in the, in the position for a long time and I started feeling like perhaps I should start looking at other things on account of it was taking a massive toll on me to upkeep everything that need, needed to be upkept and in addition to my command level things. So we're talking about hands and feet skills and we're talking about command level mm -hmm. knowledge, skills and experience and have 
across a broad range of domain to be setting the tone, so to speak, gets you very tired. And I was at that point where I was starting to be really exhausted. So mm. there was there was an opportunity for me to move on to another position and I moved to another position outside the team. That opportunity was one of the best decisions I ever made. And I think to a, to a well, I would say the hypothesis is that it, it helped me, this move actually, my, my latest move, helped me make the decision or have the courage to make the decision that I knew was right for me, which was I no longer want to go back to the team because I've, that ship has sailed. I've done what I wanted to do. I've achieved what I wanted to do and more. There is nothing for me to gain. And where do I go next? And if the answer is I was never in for anything else in the first place, and now I'm looking at the prospect of going backwards in the metaphorical sense. If mm. I was to return to the team, which I was set to do, I just simply decided, no, actually I have enough skills, knowledge, and abilities to make it on my own. I want to go out and explore the, the world outside of institutionalization. I don't want to be, because I was institutionalized for, for decades. Of course. And so I wanted to see the world through a different lens through different lenses, not just a single lens. But I, and I, when I started school, I started looking at the same problems that I've been looking at for decades from an academic standpoint or from uh, an historian standpoint or from a, a, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And I started seeing like, look, man, like there is other viewpoints that have value that are valid and I think you can get caught up in that loop where you think that your lens is the end all be all and that is the lens by which everybody should view the world. And that's not how this works and that's not how we become, become better. So I knew that I could contribute something to the world if I was brave enough, so to speak, to go out on my own and explore the world and look at it through a different lens so that I could marry up some of the differences and bridge the gap instead of polarizing. That is extremely powerful. Did you recognize that there were other ways to look at it that while you're in there? And did you have a sort of a guiding light as to what you felt your next step would be? Or did you just step out of the plane and start making the parachute on your way down? I've, I've always been extremely self-aware and also very inquisitive. And so I knew that there ought to be something more to this. It, it ought to be that there's an, there's an inherent bias in what it is that I'm doing and how will I know if I'm a subconsciously biased in a certain set of circumstances and how can I expose this and how can I add to the arsenal? And by having different lenses that I can look at the world through. And how can I bring my lens through an academic world, for example? I mean, we're, we're in our cohort in university right now. And when somebody goes on about some utopian idea of how you counter terrorism or, or, or how you affect a hostage rescue or whatever mm. the case may be, I'm able to bring an operational reality Mm -hmm. So I bring the lens of operational reality to people that have been for, in some cases, lifelong academics. Mm -hmm. And 
the, the society that separates his scholars and his warriors. Sure. Right? And, and so for me, it's, it's, it's now becoming something where I know I have something to contribute by way of my skills, knowledge, and experience over the course of the decades that I was involved in this, in this pursuit. Mm -hmm. But also now I'm able to see the other side of things and bridge that gap. And so I think as I was bridging the gap with the commanding officer of the division as the Sergeant Major responsible to make sure that we understood what the troops were going through and to make sure that the troops understood what the commanding officer's office and the executive leadership was dealing with. I've done that now extrapolated on a higher level, which is, you know, with other humans basically <laughs> and, 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 and in another field of endeavor, but same, same, no change. I just want to bring, I just want to marry up things. I'm for unity. I want unity. I do not want decisiveness. And there's only one way to achieve that. And that's to be able to be in other people's shoes. Mm. You can't achieve that if you stay in your boots and anchor yourself to your positions. You need to explore. Do you recognize anything that you're doing right now that you need to push harder on? Is there something that you're looking at that maybe is a bit outside your comfort zone, but you realize you're going to have to dig into it? And again, this isn't something that has to be talked about here, but I'm just generally curious. Because I might have a difficult time answering a question like that here. Yeah. It's. Yeah, it's, it's for me, I think most of my discomfort comes from things that I have to do in order to cement the business in a, in a position where I no longer have to worry about where my next sort of financial gain is going to come from. And, and, and I'm not, uh. I, and I'm not speaking in terms of necessarily, um, I, I don't need to be rich or anything like that. That is not what I'm after, yeah. but a certain amount of financial freedom that prevents me from having to ever consider going backwards, which is going back to what I know, going back to the field that I'm. So I add tools to the toolbox so that I'm, so that I am able to move on to go and, and, and take other pursuit, maybe be a professor in university. I would love to do that. And it's, it's already been floated by me. So eventually it, that might be in the, in the, you know, in the. That the, would be pretty cool. In the cards. But also, guess what? I am no longer limiting myself to a single course of action mm -hmm. because it needs to be run concurrently if we want life to be successful. I can't, for the life of me, do all the things that I want to do in life if I do them back to back. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. and, so, and so right now I'm at a point in my life where I want to get and maximize and optimize my life experience, mm -hmm. like what have I done? What have I, uh, what have I achieved? What have I pursued? What have I learned? What have I, I want to, God, if I could get all the knowledge, like, you know, the matrix style where sure. you get it injected straight in your brain, I would love that. And so I'm at a, I'm at a point in my life where I want to optimize and maximize the learnings. I want to optimize and maximize my performance in all kinds of various fields. And I want to be as open-minded as I possibly can on my way to doing that or mm -hmm. achieving that. And I'll never achieve it. We, we all know that, but it's, it's a pursuit that matters right. at the end of the day. And so it's all about not missing out. I have a, I have a very, very strong fear of missing out when it comes to life. The FOMO. Yeah. But it's like FOMO of how can I optimize this life? 
experience, you know? So there's two ways that you can, you can look at that, right? Whether that be the life experience, whether that be financials, whatever it might be, you either make more or do more, or you accept being happy with less and either way will lead you to that same spot. That's a difficult conundrum for a striver though, to say, I know I'm capable of so much more and I know what I can do can affect other people and it can help them in a very positive way. But I think I'm just going to sit back and be happy with less. That That's oftentimes looked at in a negative way by those who strive, but maybe it shouldn't be. No. Maybe those who are, um, maybe that example of being happy with the less is something that's going to be helping other people around you. Hey, at the end of the day, it's about being you. You do what works for you. You, you, you discount what doesn't work for you or, or I'd, I'd say you vet carefully what you perceive is of no use to you so that you may still take something out of it and continue going on in whatever path is, you know, meaningful and satisfying and purposeful to you. Mm -hmm. I, we've had this conversation before where people are, it's so polarized that if somebody is brilliant and mm. says one thing that doesn't jive with your values or whatever, now that person is fully discounted, right? Mm -hmm. I, I don't listen to him because he's, he's, he's. So that one thing I hated. Yeah, exactly. And so for me is even if you're, and, and it's funny you should mention that because I was in a guest speaking appearance in Alberta during a massive Stownhouses realty yep. meeting hundreds of people and a beautiful meeting and, uh, incredible leadership from the, from the people at townhouses. But, um, anyways, I ended up, um, there was a lot of emphasis on financial gains. So, right. you know, if you want to be a, a six figure earner, a seven figure earner, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I, sure. I, there was, there was some pretty astronomical numbers being, being, <laughs> being tossed around that I, that I'm actually, you know, not really a part of at the moment. But what was really interesting is I stepped up in front of the panel at some point and I told the crowd something that surprised them being a million dollar earner may not be your version of success. Right. Period. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, don't let other people's meaning of success dictate how you should think and feel about what you feel is successful. Perhaps because there is a cost to any of this. And if you are going to be a million dollar earner, you are likely to have an obsession. And if you have an obsession, there are, there are things that are going to have to be put on the back burner because it's only 24 hours in a day. Mm -hmm. And those things can be your family, friends, relationships, whatever the case may be. And it may not, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, you have to do what means something to you and you have to do something that you have set forth for yourself, not what other people are evaluating success by. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that was the case, anybody who isn't making a ton of money would be, you know, by, by a lot of people's standards mm -hmm. would be essentially they would negate their entire existence on account of they never reach a certain financial freedom or whatever the case right. may be, which is completely preposterous and also so short-sighted that it's almost, you know. A self-licking ice, ice cream cone, as I was being described. <laughs> you know, the, there is a certain amount of money that people have studied, they've looked at it and said, yeah, money actually does buy happiness. <laughs> sure it can. Up to a certain level, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you need, if you're not getting food, mm -hmm. if you don't have a roof over your head, if there's certain things, if you can't get back and forth to your work, you're not going to be very happy. 
and there's going to be a downward spiral from there. So at a certain point, when all of those basic needs are met, the addition of money does not have the same exponential mm-hmm. uh, benefits towards a person's happiness that many people would place on it. In fact, it can have the inverse effect of making them more and more miserable or amplifying the negative things that are in somebody's life. And, you know, I think most people, the biggest thing that a rich person can have would be to be rich in time, essentially financial freedom to be able to choose what you wish to be able to do with your time, I think is the epitome of being rich. I am a hundred percent on board with this hypothesis. I, you know, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. How, if, if the, if the financial situation is in line with the goals of how I want to live my life in a meaning, in a meaningful way and, and, and how I want to explore and how I want to be out in the world and doing certain things. And it's really interesting because again, because there's so many people with victim mentalities, when they're looking at people that are financially successful, there's always a, a nefarious reason why that's the case. And the fact is I have met some of the most financial, financially secured people, and they have done more in the financial standpoint in terms of generous donation and whatever the case may be. And yes, you know, there are tax breaks, but that's not what we are talking about. We are talking <laughs> right. about people that invested an incredible amount of money that they don't owe anybody. Mm-hmm on account of helping the collective. So some of the, some of the most selfless and caring people I have seen utilize their financial means to help others. And so it's really easy to sort of lump people in the same, in the same category on account of the things that we didn't achieve ourselves and see ourselves as victim. Or we can say, if I was where I need to be in a financial sense, could I be even more effective in proliferating whatever goodness it is on account of the collective? And for me, this is always a, foc- a focal point mm-hmm. and, and we can have a million conversations and I will always come back to that. Mm-hmm. What are you doing for others? Mm-hmm. What are you doing for others? And, and if you can't answer that, start. You know? Where did that drive to do for others? Where did that come from? Did you realize at a young age that your happiness is dependent or codependent mm-hmm. on another person's happiness? Yeah. It, I wouldn't say that it's my dependence, that my <laughs> happiness is codependent. I would say that. I would say that um, I've always been in positions where I was on a wrong end of certain situations and, and there was never anybody to help. And when there, and when there wasn't, and so I'm talking about being a youth here, I'm talking sure. about being, you know, in a, in an environment that wasn't conducive to being the person I was at the time, I wish I was that person. and and. And, and some of the challenges that came along with that and some of the exposure to either violence or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be, but it was a daily operation. And for me, it, it was always about, is there anything I can do to help somebody else? And once you have gained, once you have tasted what it feels like to truly and viscerally help somebody in life, in whatever field, in whatever way that you are capable of, there is not a single feeling in the world that beats that. Mm-hmm. There isn't a single feeling in the world, a feeling of success that beats having made a positive impact on other people's lives. And I, I don't care 
I, I kind of don't really care how you look at it. You need to experience it. You kind of need to experience it to feel what it feels like. And then, and then after you you know, it's almost, it's almost, uh, you are going to want to proliferate that. You are mm -hmm. going to want to replicate that. You are going to want. And so is some of it self-serving? Absolutely it is. There's no, I would be sitting be. here disingenuously telling everybody I'm not doing this for, for me. It should be. It's a part, it's a, it's a big part of who I'm doing it for. I, I am doing it for me. I want to feel good about my contribution to the world. It doesn't need, I don't need to leave, leave a legacy that speaks my name. Mm -hmm. I do not. Mm -hmm. But what I need to do is to leave a quiet legacy that continues proliferating goodness and, and, and I don't need to take credit for it. I just need it to continue. And that's something that for me provides my life meaning. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I think there's a lot of value to recognizing what it does for you or the, for the person who's helping others, because, you know, oftentimes you hear someone say, oh, I keep helping other people and they keep taking advantage of me. Well, if you're coming back and saying that they're taking advantage of you, it's probably because you had an expectation out of that interaction that isn't now being fulfilled. But if you can recognize that your expectation is simply that you get enjoyment out of the fact that you can help others, and it's up to you to be able to choose those people who you wish to help or not, what they do with it afterwards is entirely up to them. If they want to throw it right back in your face and you feel like you're being taken advantage of, well, maybe you're not helping, maybe you're not doing these things for the reasons that you actually think you're doing it for. Yeah, precisely. I mean, that's, that's a constant dichotomy and it's, and it's seems to be rampant and people are very quick to point out on how many humans disappointed them and whatever. And it's like, yeah, humans will disappoint. Yeah. That is an absolute fact. And you can get, if you get guaranteed of one thing in this life is that humans will disappoint you, mm -hmm. but will you disappoint you? Mm -hmm. I'm not here to change the world. I'm just, I'm just here to make sure the world doesn't change me. That's a very different perspective on things, right? That should be on your t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> We're starting a teacher, a t-shirt line. I actually went out, I think I mentioned it to you before when I was a teenager, I had uh, this idea, they had these no fear t-shirts everyone was wearing. Mm -hmm. I was like, they should make one that says, know your limits and owe your limits. Like you have no limits. Anyways, my kids are like, dad, you know, you could just go on like Zazzle and make your own. So I went ahead and I made my own damn t-shirt, but, uh, uh, yeah, I think maybe, uh, people listening, you want to see one of those on a t-shirt? Let us know. We can make it happen. <laughs> we'll do a, collabor co a collaborated uh, project between <laughs> Raven Strategic and Silver Core. Absolutely. <laughs> New t-shirt line. It's like Harley Davidson, <laughs> the most successful t-shirt company out there, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it, and this is, man, people, humans are hurting hurting. Like, I think we are vastly underestimated how much humans are hurting. Vastly on, underestimated. On what level do you think? I'm, I mean, from a, from a, just a, a meaning of life standpoint, just from a emotional and mental standpoint, just from like, we are, it, it's completely insane. And, and who isn't people that are consistently fraught with adversity, people that are consistently confronted by it. I was in Haiti, as you mentioned, as you alluded to earlier, <laughs> not on a personal vacation with my family. With your family. And yes. my, and my, and my, and my, uh, in the cheap Pome seats. Pomeranian frou-frou. <laughs> but, um, 
But I was in Haiti doing some work and I had a conversation, a very insightful conversation with some of the people I was, I was working with and asked, I, I spoke to mental wellness and suicide and the conversation inherently went a little weird as people were looking at me going, why are people killing themselves? So I'm thinking, okay, there's a few reasons why these guys would be completely oblivious to this. It's either they're, they're messing with me mm. or it's taboo to the point where they don't want to talk about it or they're privileged and they haven't been exposed to it. So, right. I, so I, which one is it? So mm -hmm. I started doing some research on um, some of the sites, the peer-reviewed sites where we have a lot of academic material. And I started reading and I found that Haiti actually has a 7% per 100,000 uh, people lower suicide rate than in America, than in the States and Canada. Interesting. And I'm like, okay, let me, let, let me, let me get this straight into my head. So what we have here, and by the time I was done in Haiti, I've spoken to people to 18 year old that has spent hours with dead bodies in front of their house that have that had seen all kinds of violence proliferated against civilians that had seen all kinds of deaths and murder and you know whatever the case may be and yet have no concept of why would someone even consider taking their own lives and we take this and and bring it over america now and we have the most comfortable lifestyle we've ever had we minimize the amount of adversity that we encounter on a daily. And in fact, most of our lives are without adversity for the most part. And our suicide rates are skyrocketing, right? People don't have that adversity. They don't know how to deal with it. E.H. Chapin would say, out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls and most massive characters are seared with scars. Absolutely. And that would speak to that. That is so... Interesting. Yeah. So it was a very, it was a very, it was a very telling, um, you know, it, it, consequentially speaking, now how does this, and so what I do with this information is, okay, well, we're not changing the way we live in North America and this isn't going to happen. So this is unrealistic, but how is this now applicable to my own life? And how do, how can I look at how I conduct business on account of having that in the back of my mind? So I'll give you an example of this as parents do. I'm no different trying to prevent my kids sometimes from experiencing some of the things that made me the person I am today. Mm. And to a certain extent, there is value in that because I am lucky to have turned out the way I have. It's mm -hmm. not just, it's not just that what I experience is what I experience in in in, 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 in an amalgamation of of countless other factors that made me successful in that in in that you know mm -hmm. in that um, endeavor. But had I been of different temperament, had I had different social experiences, it it could have went the other way, mm -hmm. and so. I digress, but what I was going on with this is essentially, if I remove all the adversity to my kids in my kids' life, what kind of tools am I giving them? It's just, and that's helicopter style parenting is very common here in the West. Very or common. We go in front and you take care 100%. of all the problems before they even sure. show up. Sure. And I, and I, and, and this to me was an sort of an exploratory tour into how are these people so resilient and how, and how 
can they keep a positive outlook on account of the circumstances? And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm there for, you know, a week, 10 days, and then I'm out. Mm. If everything goes well, mm-hmm. which evidently it did because I'm here. <laughs> but but uh, but it had me question, mm. question everything. The way I conduct business with my kids to make sure that I'm not overprotecting them, that but also that I'm evidently not uh, endangering them, so to speak, mm. willing, willfully anyways. And um, yeah. I remember a friend of mine in high school, he looks at me and says, man, you're so lucky, Trev. So why is that? Well, look at all these issues you've had. Look at these problems. Look at this adversity you've had. He says, you know, my parents are well off and I've never had any problems in my entire life. And I'm resentful towards my parents. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're resentful that you've been provided, like they've looked at what would be optimal for you and they've provided everything they think you can, but yet it doesn't matter where you come from, it seems people will look back and look for reasons to be resentful. And he would try and seek out adversity in some weird ways, just so that he can have a little bit more life experience. Maybe in one way he recognized the fact that there is value to, there is value in, in suffering. There is value in pain. There's value to adversity. Um, and at that point I looked at him and said, man, you're stupid. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've got everything, you've got it all set up. Why are you so upset? Um, who knows? Maybe there's a, uh, maybe there's a lesson there somewhere in a, in a happy medium between those two thought processes. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no arguing that it has to be a measured approach. I mean, there is a cost to benefit ratio. And, and, and there is no known algorithm for this and I'm sure it can be quantified and it's difficult. But if I look at, for example, the group that I was with in the 80, yes, their resilience was up, but also the meaning of life was lower, mm-hmm. right? And so, and so there's, there is a cost associated with this and you can't discount that cost. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is we are talking about an extreme here. Mm-hmm. We're talking about an, an extreme to another extreme right? And so generally, as it normally the case, the best place to be is generally mm-hmm. in, a, in the middle somewhere in a measured approach. And so, but it's good. I mean, having, having, and being exposed to that kind of, that kind of circumstance and, and, and experience it sort of firsthand, you know, like just being in country on the ground mm-hmm. and, and actually having to be mindful that things can go majorly sideways quickly and having contingencies to deal with that and whatever brings a dose of reality, reality back into my life and drag me out of my comfortable lifestyle. But it also having the interaction with the locals and having the conversations also shows me that there is value in this, which we already know anyways. Mm -hmm. And so now is how do I maximize and optimize the experience by bringing this back to my country and how can I, how does this impact future speaking engagement, future coaching engagement, future parenting Mm -hmm. ventures, et cetera, you know? And that's interesting. The constant thought process of how we use this for growth, how we can use this for financial growth, for personal freedom, for surrounding ourselves with people that are going to be positive influences and assist us in that endeavor. You know, I, I keep kind of going back to that other thing that we're talking about, about financial freedom, giving you the freedom of time. And, you know, I, I grew up, well, the, almost all of my clothing was hand-me-downs, um, from other people's older kids, 
my toys, uh, Jimmy Hull would say on most of my toys, Bob Hull, he was head of the uh, JIBC police academy for quite some time, but, uh, um, came from a very different mindset and relationship with, uh, money and time and what I valued. And when I figured I'm going to start my own business, I had all of these goals and expectations for what I felt were going to be measures of success within that business. And I very, very quickly realized that I don't care about money. And that relationship with money of not caring really allowed me to earn money because I wasn't chasing it. And if I'm chasing something, I'm always going to be behind it. And it's like Rockefeller, when a reporter once asked him, look at how much money you have. Like, when's it enough? How much, how much more do you need to make? He's like, just $1 more, right? Always just $1 more. So I took a different approach and I, at a very early age, looked at what my value structure is and what I hope to be able to achieve. Hasn't been easy, but I'll tell you that the money aspect of it tends to figure itself out. If you're working hard towards something you believe in, it's not work anymore. And if you're bringing value to others, which you very evidently are doing, that will see itself through your hard work and through the value you're bringing, the money just comes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Provided that there is an actual plan in place that's viable and, you know, to, 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 <laughs> to go along with, to go along with those amazing qualities. Oh, your, your plan, you got a good plan. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I'm telling you, man, for me right now, if, if, if hypothetical world. I'm totally financially free and I don't have to work a day in my life. I would be traveling the world incessantly. Yeah. Incessantly. Like I want to go and train everywhere. I want to go to Iceland and spend three months there. I want to go. I love to go to Iceland. I know. I'm, I'm so going. Yeah. That, or that is a fact. Yeah. As soon as I graduate from my program, my current program here, I will be heading off. Reykjavik. Oh, I, I, and I want to go in all the other yes. areas, the less known areas and, 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 and there's, there's so much beauty and power and, 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 oh man, all over the world. And I want, I don't want to miss, miss out on any of it. So <laughs> I just want to, I just want to get, get doing that and continue to, you know, proliferate goodness, but do it around the world. Is there anything else that we should be chatting about? I think we've talked about, uh, we've, we've weathered one power outage, um, <laughs> talked about a fair gamut of things here. Anything else we should be? Hmm. What have you and I have, is there anything we've been discussing? <laughs> well, we got some future plans, but I'm, I'm, I tend to hold those closer to my course, chest because they, um, for two reasons, like number one, if it doesn't pan out quite the way, you don't want to turn around and look like you're just blowing a lot of hot air. But the other one is there's a dopamine release apparently when you pre-talk about your plans yep. and it gives you that artificial feeling of accomplishment, which I've come to recognize. Mm -hmm. So I will talk about it after I've done it. We've got there, you've got some pretty cool plans that you're looking at. And I think there's a couple things we can uh, work together on to be able to help other people out there. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited about that. Um, but aside from those ones, I think if people want to, uh, they can tune in, they can follow, we'll put links to your social, we'll put links to your company so they know where to find you. If people, if you're looking for a keynote speaker at an event, mm -hmm. I can't think of anybody 
better than yourself to be speaking with such life experience and such uh, a powerful message to be sharing. I mean, even just uh, that one that you're doing before, you were the last speaker on that one, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tired audience, tired crew. Everyone's like, all right. So we got one more keynote speaker and you've got the ability to, I mean, you should have been, maybe there's a reason why they put you last because they knew that you'd be able to get everyone just absolutely amped. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for someone to, uh, share a life of, uh, wisdom built the hard way, there's going to be links in the uh, description here. I think, I think we've covered a, a fair gamut. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't want to stick around just to hear the sound of my voice, but I love having <laughs> conversations with you and I'm glad we did it again. Likewise. Likewise, Sam. Thank you very much. You are welcome. Brother.